0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We're back with Brad Winters. Welcome back. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Brad, one of the things that I have trouble with, with mediation, is the timing. And by that I mean, I don't know what my success rate is at mediation. It's probably not that good. But when I'm asked to mediate a case three months in or four months in, it almost never settles. Mm. Am I missing something? Am I? Yes, you are, John. I am? No. Tell me how I can settle (laughs) it three months after I file it versus, I mean, I go and the, the offers, it's almost like a light bulb goes off with the folks on the other side of the table when we're a week before trial versus you don't have a trial setting or you're eight months out. Yeah. Well, the cost picture of the case is so radically
0: different. I mediate some cases before it's filed, before suit, or in the first weeks or months. The cost, just out-of-pocket cost, comparing that to the courthouse steps, can be hundreds of thousands of dollars different on both sides. So parties could spend 200,000 on experts and deposition transcripts and everything. You could be four, $500,000 delta swing in just out-of-pocket. And that's an arrow in the mediator's quiver I'm a big believer in both, frankly, and the case will often dictate it. If you've got a case where it's going to be intense expert witnesses, Back when I was a defense lawyer, I'd say to my clients, if you don't like my bills, hire an expert because they're they're going to be every bit as dramatic and it's going to be very concentrated. You're going to get hit with a big bill quickly.
1: Not to mention defense costs. I mean, that's what I really had trouble understanding is I think I maybe sometimes naively thought that there would be an incentive for the client, the carrier, to get the case settled earlier. But I think part of it, too, in the defense of the defense... Most of the cases were involved and in, nobody really knows everything in the beginning. I mean, they're way more involved in the discovery process. Things will come up. People will take positions and depositions that maybe aren't what they thought they should have been. It's kind of like a roller coaster. I think good cases tend to get better, and cases that aren't so good tend to get worse. But there are ups and downs.
0: Right, but there are some cases where the facts aren't going to change much. They are what they are. And that's not true necessarily in products cases where, you know, you've got a lot of digging to do. But I mean, some cases are pretty straightforward and experienced lawyers like you are going to know, here's how this is probably going to go. And here's the amount of money we're probably going to end up spending, which is coming right off the top of the plaintiff's recovery. And you can make at least an informed decision. And sometimes that first mediation in a big enough case is valuable because you'll obviously learn some things about the case, but it'll inform you and make you better at the second time, which is a higher possibility of success. Because I see this a lot. The second mediations, people come. And they say, this time we're not going to fail. And that's true whether I mediated it the first time or someone else mediated it the first time. If I can get a case that's already been mediated
1: once, it is a really high likelihood. that it's Because it's maybe started. there's been some movement and didn't get it the first time. You got it. Yeah, that's a good point. What do you think about putting conditions on, like preconditions to the mediation, whether it's confidentiality or asking for a good faith offer, like the plaintiff taking the position before we bother to mediate, we want to see a good faith offer on the table. You know, what do you think about that generally? Or then the problem, I guess, is if they put some offer on the table and you don't really like it, but what do you do? My
0: take first is that if you ask a hundred different mediators, you might get a hundred different answers, or certainly you won't get the unanimity of thinking, and that's true if you ask lawyers this question, because this is a big one. My view is I want as little done before I get my hands on the case as possible. If you've got money, hold on to it. Let me do my thing. Let me get my hands on the parties. Let me get my legs underneath me. Let me take the measure of the plaintiffs. Let me get a sense of everybody's enthusiasm for the case. And I say all the time, if you're paying attention as a mediator and you're asking the right questions and you're really observant, the parties will tell you their number. They may not know they told you, but they'll tell you. Give me a chance to do that. Uh As I approach starting the mediation and I find out, you know, where were you on offers? Where were you on demands? I want as clear a palette as I can get. No offer, no demand is my favorite starting point because nobody has any preconceived notions. Nobody has any sense. And the less talk in preparation between lawyer and plaintiff client there is about where we're going to end up, the better I like it,
1: the better I do. It's funny, I don't pick a number. You know, there are too many things that can change. I mean, the bottom line is you don't know what 12 people are gonna be sitting in the jury box and I have a sort of a comfort zone. I know what I would turn down very comfortably, and I know what I would take or recommend very comfortably, and usually there's a big range in the middle, but there are too many unknowns. One of the things that I did for years and years, and I'm convinced it was absolutely not productive and the wrong thing to do. We used to prepare these presentations at the beginning of the mediation. I mean, I did that for years. I mean, 15, 20 years, and it would be the most hard-hitting points, and then the other side's all pissed off, and then they say something, and my client's ready to reach over the table, and I'll just tell you, one example, and I won't tell you who the lawyers were, but both of you probably know the lawyers. It was a very, very sad case. And it was a construction case. And this guy was a young man with two daughters and a wife, and he was killed. And I represented the family of the man who was killed. And we had two defense attorneys on the other side of this case with completely different personalities. And one of them went first. And that lawyer did like a fantastic job moving this case towards settlement. And I hated it. I wanted my client to be a little bit more, dig their heels in. And he basically came and said, we're good for it. This was terrible. This never should have happened. We want to make it good. What it was doing, it was having the effect of getting my client in the mood to try to get the case resolved. Okay. And then the other lawyer came out and went on the attack, you know, and started talking about comparative fault. And at that time, the deceased parents were also parties to the case. And this young man's father had to be physically prevented from reaching over the table and like wringing that lawyer's neck, you know, because of what was said. But again, that was a pre-meeting where we're talking about the facts of the case. So the poor mediator in that case, it took him like three hours to just calm everybody down before we could even start talking about it. It made the environment very hostile. What is your thought about that? And is it ever productive to do some kind of evidentiary presentation pre-mediation or at the mediation?
0: Well, I'm a vendor and I'll do it any way parties want, but I strongly encourage no opening statements. And I think the reason there's been this evolution is that mediation as a skill and a science is really advanced. And when we started, it was a bunch of lawyers or judges who said, OK, come on over and I'll see what I can do. Yeah. What's your case about? What do yeah, you say yeah. about that? Yeah, what yeah. do you think? Or there was no pre-mediation materials or pre-mediation calls like we do now. And as the mediator, I need to know what the case is about. Why don't you both tell me? When I was still in practice of a mediator wanted opening statements, I was skeptical. It's like you or she wasn't gonna read my stuff. My view is if there's a message to be delivered, I not only wanna decide how it's delivered, much more importantly, I wanna decide when. You're paying me for a service, let me provide it. The beginning of the day is almost never the best time to deliver the message that the lawyer wants to deliver an opening statement because you set the tone. And you said it a minute ago, the mediator spent some time getting the train back on the tracks. It can take time. I've had parties, not their lawyers, parties insist on doing opening statements, and it was horrifying. I had to keep a straight face, and it was long, and it was painful and unconducive
1: to the day's enterprise. So does that ever happen? I mean, almost all of the mediations that you see, is there no like presentation in the beginning? Very infrequently. If somebody wants to do it, I would never say no,
0: but I would always warn the other side and say, look, you know, you don't have to do one and I'm going to give you an out in front of everybody. I'm going to say, after this opening statement ends, you know, you're free to say something or just uh, thank them and move on in good faith and here we go. But there are some cases where the plaintiff's lawyer will say to me, my client needs to have an opening statement. They need a day and quarter as close as they're going to come to it. They need to see that somebody is telling these defendants that you've hurt my client and she resents what you did and she wants you to know what you did and she wants you to know how you have affected their life. And if a
1: lawyer who knows their
0: client tells me that that'll be helpful to the process, then by Kind amazing. of
1: obviously everybody wants to tell their story want to be listened to. I don't know that it needs to be in the group setting with the other side in the case, but maybe it does in some cases. The personality, of the mediator, can make or break a mediation. My question for you is to what extent you see your role as a mediator being akin to a counselor, almost a therapist. It's a great question. There's always
0: emotion and sometimes in unexpected places, you know, an insurance coverage case, sometimes you get people who are crying and laughing. I gotta stay out of the emotional mosh pit and I really try to diffuse it to the best of my ability. But the strategy that I use to avoiding that is this, that I make it very clear from the very beginning. And I encourage lawyers when you're preparing your clients for mediation to do this. But I make it very clear. In fact, I tell parties, my goal today is not to settle this case. And people's jaws drop. And what are we paying you for? I said, look, settlement will happen if I reach my goal. Here's my goal. I want to get for the plaintiff, the defendant's best proposal. And I want to get for the defendant, the plaintiff's best proposal. If those proposals touch or overlap, we're settled. If not, you can bridge the gap if you want to. And that seems like a small thing, but I go back to it periodically during the deposition, especially with plaintiff's room and say, I wasn't kidding. My job is to get every nickel that you can get today on the table and you can then decide if it's enough. We're not here to settle. We're here to find out if we can settle. And by creating that image of myself, I think it advances a lot of balls because when the plaintiff, particularly a plaintiff, walks into a mediation, they've got a certain construct in their head. It's like a boxing ring. I've got the defendant and their lawyer on the other side of the ring. i got me and my lawyer on this side of the ring and in the middle with the bow tie. There's winners. You know, he's the referee. He's going to stop low blows, break up clinches if things bog down. And then the fight begins. And what happens is, is that the plaintiff knows that the defendant wants him to settle cheap. The defendant thinks that I'm pushing them to settle cheap. And then if their lawyer starts saying, let's go down, let's go down, suddenly it's like wait a minute, I'm alone here. Even my own lawyer wants me to settle cheap. And I've seen that in people's eyes and it's my alarm bells go off in my head. That's a nightmare scenario for a mediator because I've got an isolated plaintiff and now he doesn't trust me or anybody. True, yeah, And that's a disaster. So once I reinforce this notion that our shared goal today is nothing more and nothing less than to give you a choice. And I tell lawyers all the time, when you're preparing a party for mediation, Tell them, look, we're not going to settle. We're going to find out if we can settle because you've lived with these injuries for four years. You've lived with this case for two years and you're entitled today, today, to find out if you want it, how much you can get to end this case and take the off ramp. And the mediator is going to help us achieve that goal. And now we're all working together. And you can say, there'll be times where I'm going to say, let's lower our demand. But it's all towards this shared goal that the mediator and I are going to have for you to get you that decision point. It's a subtle sort of tonal change, but changing my goal as a mediator and announcing it is the one thing I've done that I've changed from when I first started you know, it took me 100 mediations not to get good, but to realize it wasn't good enough. I mean, I was getting cases settled, but not all of them and not enough of them. And I was having awkward moments and there were things that I knew could have gone smoother and better. And I always thought that, you know, I was a blunt instrument. You know, I push the plaintiff towards the defendant, then I push the defendant towards the plaintiff. And sooner or later, gravity takes over and they'll pull each other towards each other. And then somebody will say, well, are we really going to leave for just X dollars? And it's settled. And that works, but it doesn't work often enough and well enough and smoothly enough. And it risks harming the lawyer, plaintiff, Relationship. relationship.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you.
0: Because I've seen it so many times. The look in these plaintiff's eyes when they're a champion, their knight in shining armor is listening to me give them tough love about statute of limitations, defenses, and comparative fault, and everything yeah, else. Yeah, that's
1: never been productive, in my view, when the mediator is in our room pointing out things that, well, this and it's like it's too much of a salesman kind of thing. You're 100% right, except That's why opening statements don't work because
0: who the message comes from is as important as the message. So sometimes I'll say, there's a lot of enthusiasm in the other room for this argument. And I do say this, I said, look, I live here in the Eastern District and I have a law degree. I could be a judge or a juror, so I'm gonna tell you the way it hits me. The first question that came to my mind when I finished these materials was this. And I'm telling you that because if we don't settle, you at least get some judge or jury research out of this because I have the qualifications to be both. I couch it that way because you're 100% right. If I come off as a salesman, I'm not pushing settlement and I'm not pushing parties. All I'm doing is working towards this data point. I want to reach the point where I can say to the plaintiff, we're done here. That's the best deal you can get. Now, it is up to you. I've done my job. Your lawyer's helped me. He's done a great job. She's done a great job. We have worked together and I think made some smart moves today, even though I think you were concerned, Miss Plaintiff, that a couple of the moves were too big. They were the right move at the right time. And here we are. This is your off-ramp. And if you want to take it, great. And if not, that I understand too. But I've done my job.
1: You mentioned something. I think it's really important that you practiced here. You understand the judges, you understand the jurisdictions. And I run into it a lot with cases where I'm out state or something, and I'm in front of somebody that the defense usually end up picking somebody who's familiar with that jurisdiction. And it's two things going on. I might not have tried a case in that jurisdiction, but the flip side of that is we get good results in cases, even in bad jurisdictions. I mean, we do a pretty good job on cases and we've done that. I mean, we've had record verdicts in out-state jurisdictions. You know, a lot of times when I'm in that situation, I might be in front of a mediator who has never seen a seven-figure case. I mean, ever. And I'm convinced our case is worth a hell of a lot more than what they would ever think it is. I was, and I won't mention names, I was in front of a judge in a medical malpractice case, was retired judge that probably had never seen a plaintiff's verdict. <laughs> amen, amen. No, <laughs> yes. Okay. My thought on that is smart lawyers settle good cases. And I get that too, where I'll ask for a demand in a certain jurisdiction. And they'll say, show us a verdict and show us. And I said, show me a case that was tried with these facts, right? That's what I want to know. And tell me who the lawyers were. They can't. I have trouble with that. Is that justified or am I being too hard on mediator selection? I want somebody who's not afraid of a big number. And part of it is because if they don't pay the number, it's not going to get settled anyway. So you can voir dire the mediator. I well, mean. I don't know. I'm, and maybe <laughs> I am, but I need to learn something about the jurisdiction, obviously. I'm in a situation where the mediator knows more about the jurisdiction than me, but I'm concerned that it's not all the jurisdiction. It's the case. It's the attorney handling the case. It's who's on the other side of the case. Is that being too, like, egotistical or oh, too harsh? God,
0: no. I always try, and I'd say in the 90% range, to do a pre-mediation call. I've already read the materials from the parties. I've already been on Pacer, CaseNet, and read, uh, you know, any summary judgment motions or juicy pleadings in the file that'll help me get my legs underneath me. And if there's some area of technology, I'll read a little online, or if the, the accident was in the paper, I'll find the article in the post. I get asked a lot of questions, and there's an opportunity for you. If the mediator's practice is not to do it, pick up the phone and call him you can have the wrong mediator for your case. Absolutely. And sure, I mean, if you're going to try the case in some remote rural county in you know, Virginia, it's an away game for you. You've got to have a sense of what the folks there are like and what people think is a big verdict and what history tells you. But at the end of the day, the case is going to stand on its own. And I'm going to ask this jury for a substantial amount. And you may literally have a conversation where you hang up the phone and you say, let's find somebody else.
1: When did the venue laws change? 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever. But cases weren't tried out in those jurisdictions for the most part. Not those kinds of cases. Yeah, not those kinds of cases. And there have been, and I've seen it in the last 10 years, there have been significant verdicts in outstate jurisdictions. And I was one of two cases in um, Phelps County. And Phelps is Ralla. It's not a little town, but that's all I heard. There were two cases, one right in front of me, and I was going next. For whatever reason, the judge set them literally back to back. They were going to be tried separately. And so I got to sit through and watch my case being tried because I was going next.
0: Oh, that's unbelievable. Yeah.
1: And I watched most of it, but I was particularly interested in the dire We did it in a Lions Club facility because of the COVID and all of this. And I think it's still on appeal. But the first case went before me. I thought our case was a stronger case. And I think it was a $12 million verdict. And again, all I heard through three years was... Never been a verdict of more than, you know, 500,000 and 500,000, this kind of stuff. And I thought the case was what it was. They were both two very good, significant cases. And of course, that verdict came in. It was a two-week trial on a Wednesday. And my case got resolved on Sunday before we started the next you know they didn't have the appetite for doing that again so to speak well and query whether the internet
0: had something to do with that where folks in the 50s and 60s would open up the morning paper from whatever the morning yeah, paper was yeah. in cape to now where they're looking at the same page that i am
1: or that somebody in manhattan is yeah i mean they see it from all over they're just not reading their local paper you're right most of the cases we try they are good cases they are significant injuries good clients I'm told repeatedly that our expectations are too high because of the venue. And I just, I'm still not believing that. I think a good case is a good case. It's who your client is and what the facts of the case are. Well, and now based on experience, you're not going to be bullied into believing, you know, the yeah, conventional that won't, wisdom. That, right. yeah.
0: <laughs> As you know, that won't happen. It's not so much being bullied into doing
1: something, but being convinced of something that isn't the case just because yeah. you're not from there. Yeah. So, Brad, let me ask you this. Let me put you on the spot. So okay. can you tell us one or two things that you think are most helpful for a party going into mediation? And then same thing, one or two things that are not so helpful, like the worst things that you could think of going into a mediation. Don't
0: overthink or over-focus on the settlement number before you walk in. And you said earlier, John, you know, that you have a range in your head. And you say it out loud in mediation. Look, we don't settle our cases for less than we think they're worth. And you don't have to. But actually putting a number on it in your prep with your client that's really destructive and dangerous for you because here's how some lawyers prep their clients for mediation. All right, we're going over to the, this guy's office and we're going to sit up there all day, bring a book. It's going to be boring. I'll meet you in the lobby 30 minutes before we'll have some coffee and I'll talk you through and we're not going to take lesson X. See ya. Once you say that, then, I mean, there may be a number close to X that might make sense. And people do learn things in mediation. I have it happen all the time. A defense may not have been pled properly and you're going to trial next week or this was missed or that was missed. And minds change and people's perspective changes. And if the mediator is you know carrying messages effectively back and forth. And you don't want to find yourself in a position, this is just devastating, where you're advocating for a settlement or feel you have to advocate for a settlement that's less than you told your client before you went in you were ever
1: going to take. I never do that. I never pick a number. I'll tell them a number that I would comfortably turn down, but the reality is it's just uncertainty and risk is what it's all about. On the other side, the plaintiff side, the defense side, one of the big variables that we don't know until we know is who those 12 people are going to be. Whatever anybody thinks their case is worth, defense, plaintiff, or whoever, you have to live with the fact that depending on the case, it might be a higher degree of uncertainty, but there's always uncertainty.
0: You've looked through enough mirrors in jury research to know that 12 people heard the same story, saw the same pictures, listened to the same witnesses got back in a jury room and one saw an elephant and one saw a giraffe. It's just 180 degrees different. It's not that anybody is smarter than anybody else or more perceptive than anybody else. It's just, you know, we have filters and lenses and prisms through which we hear and see. And so now the vagaries and the uncertainties of trial by jury, I don't harp on a mediation, but you can't ignore it. There's no telling what they're what I try to do, and I often do, I will play some game theory, which is generally, what's your worst day? What's your best day? Tell me those numbers. And the worst day is always worse because the worst day is you win and then you lose it on appeal and you gotta do it again and you get it for costs and then you lose. But worst day on one end, best day on the other. Now, let's try this case a thousand times and let's plot above that continuum of best day to worst day, what those thousand data points look like and you'll end up with a bell curve and it'll either be shifted bad or shifted good, but there's gonna be some outliers. There's going to be some dots out there at zero, and there's going to be some dots out there at $50 million. I don't know what a jury is going to do in this case, but I am 100% certain that you don't either. And you have got to assign to each of those dollar figures along that continuum sort of a risk factor. I got a 50-50 chance of doing better than this number. There's uh-huh. the number. Uh-huh. That's the midpoint. That's the fulcrum. I got a 50-50 chance of doing better than that, worse than that. And as I analyze the case over the course of the day, that's the number I'm kind of angling toward as meteor. I'm not trying to push people or herd them in that direction, but that's the number I'm pretty sure they're going to head to. Because I hear that all the time that, oh, you know, the definition of a settlement is when everybody's unhappy. Well, I don't buy that. The definition to me of a settlement is when everybody's unhappy the same or everybody is happy the same. I love that when that's the outcome. I don't get hurt or put my thumb on the scale towards that, but it's the natural tendency. Mm -hmm. And I need to take advantage of that natural tendency and allow people to fall towards the number that is ultimately gonna make sense. But people are thinking it's too rigid and their range is too rigid.
1: What's the good thing? What do you like seeing? Well, maybe not
0: exactly an answer, but the one thing that wrecks my day is lawyers who don't quite care enough. And what I mean by that is, well, I'll use you as an example of the opposite. I mean in any case for John, it was a highly leveraged case where the bad could have been terrible, but the good could have been above the fold of Missouri Lawyer's Weekly Good. And it was high leverage, and that's the game John wants to be in. And John wanted to try this case, desperately wanted to try this case, and was fine if we didn't settle. But the money came in, and the money started to get right, and then the money got right. And I watched John put all of his desire to try the case, his desire to be above the fold in observe Lawyers Weekly and to enjoy the thrill of that outcome, put it in a Tupperware, put the top on, set it aside. And John could have talked the client out of this settlement, but didn't. And it was the right number and he took it and there was no looking back. I see lawyers who aren't always dialed in on that, where I want to take this chance. Let's take this chance on a much bigger number. It's really important to this client that they get something, but I'm willing to take the risk rather than my client really can't afford to take that risk. And people who aren't quite dialed in on the care meter, those are harder days for me for all kinds of reasons. Angry, people come in angry. That's a problem. So I got to diffuse that. That's
1: tough because it's all of these cases are so emotional for our side of the table. These are folks who've never seen anything like this in their lives. The other side of the table on the defense side, the lawyers have been through hundreds of mediations and the client has been through mediations. I think that's the one thing is the biggest issue about emotion and objectivity is who I represent. Not only have they never been through it before, they didn't ask to be through it. They didn't want to be through it. They'd rather not have any of this be going on. And I think that's like you were talking about before about trust and having somebody listen to them and be on their side. I think if you do it right and you treat your client the way they need to be treated and put their interest first, I've never had a client who strongly disagreed agreed with my recommendation about anything because they trust me and I think at the end of the day at the end of the case if you don't have that trust you didn't represent them the right way and things are going to get tougher for you as you go forward
0: if a lawyer has made a mistake in a case and I the other room says they don't know this or you can tell them if you want but they didn't do this or the lawyer didn't I have to be very careful for a number of reasons but if the plaintiff as an individual loses confidence in their lawyer my day's over I've seen it with the mediator, too. I mean, they have to trust the mediator. And in the traditional construct where it's, you know, boxing, where I'm the referee, it's, you know, you got to trust me to be objective and fair. Mm-hmm. But that's why I kind of modulated a little bit in terms of the tone of my mediations is that I'm on your team. I always say to mediators, you other to decide who do you want to be. Are you neutral? Are you on their team? Are you on nobody's team? Are you on your own team? Because I've been in mediations as a lawyer where the mediator clearly was the third team on the field and that was the only team he was rooting for. I want to get this W. I want to get this done. It felt very ugly that they were in it for themselves for something, some personal gratification that they would get from getting the W of a settlement. I want both sides to believe that I'm on their team because it's true. All I care about in both rooms is getting the best proposal they can get today so that they can make that decision today with the best information they've had. I say, look, I'm not a failure if you don't settle, but I am a failure. If you leave here today unsettled, having rejected anything other than the other side's very best proposal, and I promise you, I'll either get it for you or I'll tell you what I think it is. And the party's confidence in the mediator, I think it's easier for me to avoid any suspicion about what I'm up to when I have stated that my goal is
1: to get this for you. I don't
0: care if you settle. I don't care if you take it. I'm not trying to push you into a settlement. I'm way
1: over here trying to get that number. And you know what, Brad? That's all any meat eater can do anyway. Yeah, but you've seen them do it different. Right. No, I- I, Come on, move. I need you to move more. I need you to move more. But the reality, objectively, at the end of the day, whatever number they're going to get is their number, and you're either going to take it or not. It's just how you get everybody there. And the way you're talking about it is, I think, way more effective. We're going to have to take a pause, but we're glad to have you back for another episode. Thank you for agreeing to come back one more time. It's been great. Good to see you. All right. That has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Beath. This is John Simon. See you next time. The Jury
0: Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the
1: best lawyers never stop learning.